Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Make some noise, DC! Woo! Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast live in DC. DC, make some noise! Come on! All right, I think that's because they haven't had a few drinks yet, so we're gonna have a few drinks. Uh, as you know, I am Mike Leon. And glad not to my kids who done the Academy. Kanye West. I'm Nick Severi. These are getting worse and worse. I apologize hey, that, for that, folks. The school just closed. I know, I know. It get closer to me. An hour why, are you, why are you over there? Come on, get over here okay. closer to me. <laughs> okay, you, fair sir. enough. All right. We've got some fantastic guests lined up for our two-year anniversary here live in Washington, D.C., I've known this man for 26 years. We went to college together at Rutgers long University. Long ass time. Yeah, long ass time. <laughs> and we started this show two years ago to talk about everything happening in the world of news and politics, but not just from our perspectives, because who the hell are we, right? We want to talk to people who know what they're talking about. You're going to hear some of those folks coming up. But first, two years ago, to this date, Nick, you and I started this show. Uh-huh. Why don't we take a look at what it sounded like? Okay. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Mike Leon. We're here today just to talk about a series of different conversations. We, for each of these conversations, we take one theme and we sort of just do a deep dive into it. And our focus for our focus for this for this first episode is around it's around the media. News over that time has kind of evolved with it. Um, whereas before, you know, you get your paper and that's how you're getting your news. You know, you have one radio station and, and you have an anchor that you may trust there. Oof, that was tough to watch. I apologize for that, everybody. That is, that is how to not I may, do a show. I may be missing some. That's not that terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, we have, much, we have better mics and, you know, better backgrounds. Yeah, now, I was going to say, you're missing something for sure. Um, <laughs> but two years ago, like I said, we set out on a mission to really talk to people who know what they're talking about, give you guys informed perspective on the news that's happening in the day, 
and you don't want to hear from us anymore. So let's get into our fantastic panel of people that know what they're talking about. Let's make some noise for our guests that are coming up today. Come on, DC, make some noise. I want to hear it. All right. First up, she's a former CIA officer, former State Department spokesperson. She was an advisor to Secretary Kerry. She's a Fox News contributor. She's got to run the Fox News right after this. Give it up for Marie Harf, everybody. Give it up. Come sit right there, Marie. Uh, yeah, I'll get it for you. Yeah, that's right. I, I am. I am. And then, next up, he's been on our show recently. If you haven't checked out the episode where we talked about the FBI DOJ investigation into former President Trump, this guy is a former FBI special agent in charge of espionage. He arrested Anna Montez, the former Cuban spy for the DIA, and he wrote a book about her coming out soon called The Queen of Cuba. This is my buddy Pete Lapp. Make some noise for Pete Lapp. Pete. Are you good being the first guest in this I do. anniversary episode? We'll do this before the beer kicks in. There it is. <laughs> exactly. Can everybody hear us? Everybody hear us? Is this working? Sound check yes. in the back? Yeah. Very cool. Uh, first off, thank you for both of you being here. Uh, let's get, for the people that don't know, I just gave a high-level intro. Tell us a little bit about what you did in government when you were at CIA, when you were at State Department, and then why you wanted to get into government. I'll start with you first, Marie. Okay, well, thank you. Um, you know, I was in college on 9-11, which now feels like ancient history to the students I teach at Georgetown, but it really uh, made me believe that I wanted to be a government servant and I wanted to help in the war on terrorism. So I had been studying the former Soviet Union, maybe I should have kept doing that now with what's going on in the news, but I, I transitioned to studying terrorism, went to graduate school and applied for one job at the CIA to be an analyst covering Saudi Arabia. Thankfully, I got that job. My parents were very grateful for that. And a few years into that job, a press job opened up. And no one at the CIA wants to be a spokesperson. They think we should not talk. For the reporters in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so I gave it a shot. And in the 15 years since then, my career has been focused on how do we explain to Americans why what we're doing overseas matters to them. Right, and that's a hard challenge to, to explain to someone why Ukraine matters to them, why uh, these faraway places and trade wars matter to them. And so whether it was at the CIA or the State Department, um, on political campaigns or on Fox News, that's sort of been my driving goal. And I miss government every day. I think we probably both do. Uh, the pay's a little bit better on the outside. Yeah, but, um, you know, the, it, it is you know, despite the deep state and all the Republicans hating on, like, government workers, it's a pretty great job if you can get it. Well, well, don't, don't jump the gun here, Marie. We're going to get to that in a second about distrust in government. Pete, for you, FBI special agent, I just mentioned before in the intro how you arrested Anna Montez. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to work at the Bureau. So we haven't had this conversation. I, too, am from Jersey. Perfect. And, I'm the and only non-Jersey person. Yeah, it's a Jersey yeah. panel. Uh, yeah. But when I was numbered. in high school, growing up on the Jersey Shore, I wanted to be the next Bon Jovi. Okay. Because you either were a Springsteen guy or a Bon Jovi guy. <laughs> I grew up in the hair band phase. And, and I, I knew that I had to have some talent. I didn't have quite that much talent. So when I got to college, I needed a plan B. And my goal in college, I learned pretty quickly that I wanted to go into law enforcement. And, and if I was going to go into law enforcement, I pretty quickly realized I wanted to go to what I believed and still believe to be the greatest law enforcement agency in the world, which is the FBI. And I set my sights on that at a very early age. And everything I did to get into was to make myself more competitive 
And somehow in 1998, I snuck in and got through the cracks and was uh, very fortunate to be hired as an FBI agent. Awesome there. Yeah, as Pete, as you were just talking about that, and Maria, as you both, just being in the government space, you know, what are you noticing now from the standpoint of recruitment? People are just joining now. Like, do you both have opportunities to connect with people who are just getting into those respective bureaus? And what seems to be different when people aren't joining now? What's their reality versus when you both join your respective agencies? Well, I think, you know, I've talked to folks that have just come on to the job at the FBI. And I think the motivation is the same that I had when I came in in 1998. I think the reality is they have become much more cognizant that it's a, it's a divisive time. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an organization that you're gonna get potentially the opportunity to work high profile cases. And sometimes that's maybe not the best of situations to be in and you're gonna potentially cause yourself to be under a lot of scrutiny. That's probably a reality, um, unfortunately, and not something that I had to think about when I was coming into the organization. Like, I am gonna be part of a big investigation. I was just happy to get in and was fortunate to become part of a, a good news story, a successful story, but today's world, it's, 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 it's potential that you're gonna be a part of something that's gonna give you a lot of scrutiny, and unfortunately, not often in the best of ways. What about you, Marie? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know about the hiring slowdowns during the Trump years for a variety of reasons. People didn't want to go into government at the same rate. And I think what you know, my friends who are back in this administration have, have found is that it's really hard to get over that hangover. It's been harder than they thought. It's been harder to rebuild these agencies. It's been harder to get young men and women to join. And I think that's exactly for the reasons you just said. It's also that you know, a lot of what we talk about are the rules that the Trump team broke or the, or the, you know, regulations or the laws, but a lot of it was just this erosion of norms that means that a place like the CIA where uh, certain things just weren't done under Democratic or Republican administrations, they are now, or they were, and they could be again. And that's, you know, coming from an organization that survived the Bush years with Iraq WMD, with the rendition, detention, and interrogation program. Like, it wasn't just all rosy until we got to the Trump years. And so I think, you know, I teach at Georgetown now, and I think my students are looking at consulting, they're looking at Wall Street and finance, they're looking at NGOs, and we increasingly have to make a better case about why you will have impact. Because the other thing that happened was all these young people saw everything that Democrats had worked for for eight years get erased by Donald Trump. Whether or not you agree with what Trump did, it, it left this idea that we can work really hard to get an Iran nuclear deal or a Paris climate agreement or an opening to Cuba and it can be erased very quickly. And that's just a reality of our system. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned a former president and you fed right into the segue perfectly. Uh, as you Look do, at that. I was going to say, almost as if you're on television. Uh, anyway, um, we're going to talk about the former president right now because obviously, the distrust in government, you guys have worked on the inside, Nick and I are on the outside, there's some journalists in this room that are covering it, one from Reuters here who sits every day interviewing people from the Department of Defense and, and elsewhere. The Trump administration and specifically the former president that's now campaigning, if you want to call it that, he's out there doing his promo tour, and he's saying certain things that are eroding confidence over the last six years steadily in the three-letter agencies that both of you guys were a part of. I want you guys to take a listen to this, and we're going to get some reaction on the opposite side. Take a listen to this. The FBI and the Justice Department have become vicious monsters 
controlled by radical left scoundrels, lawyers, and the media who tell them what to do, you people right there, and when to do it. They're trying to silence me, and more importantly, they are trying to silence you. But we will not be silenced, right? Something like that would not, I mean, you could speak on this, but like, where are we now with agencies having, at the White House level, openly, ho open hostility? I mean, this is more of an anomaly because he's a bit of an anomaly as a president, right. but over the last few administrations, Where's that push-pull have been that you both have been you both have been seeing or hearing from previous um, times of you know, in the agencies? Where, well, and the question is whether he actually is an anomaly going forward. I think the fear is that he's not, particularly on the Republican side. Um, but look, when I was the CIA spokesperson, you, if you had told me that only a few years later our biggest critics would be the right, would be Republicans. The ones that wanted us to do everything during the war on terrorism, you know, they were pushing us to Iraq, uh, and that it's you know Democrats would be more supportive. It's like Trump turned everything on its head, right? And I think you can have officers in the CIA or the FBI or any of these agencies every day doing their work, and what you what you are reminded of is at the end of the day, it's the president's name on the door. Right, you can write the best memos, you can write the best papers, you can give him or her the best intelligence, and if they don't use it and they hate you, it doesn't matter for shit, right? And that, again, this is a norm. It's like, this isn't baked into our system, this is a norm, and once those norms start going away, I mean, this is what's so scary about, about Trump. Yeah, Pete. I mean, among many things, well, that's yeah. one of them. Throughout that montage, I, saw, I was watching you, and I see your face like, like you're upset. I, I want you to express how upset you are as somebody who's kind of trampling on your career and life's work. Yeah, so I worked at the FBI for the last four years of my career uh, under former President Trump. And what was great about the FBI, what I enjoyed the most about it, every, every employee walks into that building with a political preference or a political opinion. And when you had your coffee in your hand and you hit the badge and the door opened up to start your day, you left it at the front door. We didn't talk about politics within the organization. We had lots of TVs up in the squad areas, and one day it would be Fox News, and one day it would be CNN. But we did not talk politics. And it just was so refreshing. And I don't think the American people realize that it's such an apolitical organization. We at the FBI had a have a public corruption program. It's a very big program. And we arrest Democrats and Republicans for public corruption, whether you stick $90,000 in your freezer or whether like what happened with the former governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, where he was a Republican and was arrested and convicted and charges were overturned, obviously, but for political corruption. I always felt if you were pissing off both Democrats and Republicans, you were doing, doing your, your job, job at right. the FBI. And today it's just so disheartening because so many of my former colleagues wake up every day with two goals, whether they work Russian counterintelligence or public corruption or healthcare fraud, protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. That's it, that's all they're trying to do and get home safely at night from whatever and to be able to have to put up with this bullshit, quite frankly, is difficult for them to do, but they're professionals and they tolerate it and they just tune it out and do their jobs. To you both, you're in a room full of people, uh, people who are not, correct me if I'm wrong, raise your hand if you are a current member of the FBI or CIA. <laughs> no? Okay, yeah. fair enough. 
Um, a room full of people who have no knowledge of your respective fields other than what's covered on television, newspapers, other outlets. What would you say to a group of people who are just from the outside learning about the intricacies of your respective organizations that hear hate speech like that, as we just played a moment ago, to really just educate people like, what is the reality of the work that you do? And something, and often, what is the unspoken reality of professionally what you can share uh, of working in those respective agencies? Yeah, the Bureau and Department of Justice, they follow the facts. They follow the facts, and the facts lead to meeting the elements of a crime, and it's prosecutable. They'll do that, regardless of, of, of who you are, what political background you have. Uh, you know, the, the folks that are working the Mar-a-Lago investigation, I actually know, but not for retiring, I could have been working that investigation myself. It's an espionage-related. I spent most of my career working counterintelligence and espionage. Uh, I put someone in jail for espionage. This is not something they want to do. It's their job. This allegation fell on their desk, and they're sitting there going, wow, one day I'd like to have a big case. This is not the big case that they want because of the scrutiny. The opportunity, there's been two agents that worked this case whose public inf personal information have been doxxed, whose kids are having to be taken to school by police officers. That's just not right, all because they're just doing their job. And I think that that hopefully is what we can impart to the American people, that they're just a bunch of good people trying to do their job that's been handed to them, and, and they're just there to follow the facts. What about you, Maria, on that point? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I think every time I come on your show, I love talking to both of you, but I, I come away from it being even more sort of down about the state of things because... Oh, my bad. That's on no, you, it's by not way. your yeah, fault. Been. You're not the problems. Because we have good conversations, and we really dive into issues, and it's not a three-minute TV hit, which I love doing, but, you know, it's not, it's not that. It's a real conversation. And for me, you just can't look at any of these things individually. Right, you, you have to look at the all-out assault on our democratic institutions, on our democracy, and, and it, it's, it's whether it's going after CIA officers who are just telling the truth, right? Whether it's going after FBI officers, whether it's, it's not, it's, it's disenfranchising voters or saying you're not going to accept the outcome of an election. This is all part of one plan and play by predominantly the Republican Party. And so I think even just the Trump investigations, they're all part of his, I don't know if you've read Maggie Haberman's book, which I'm sure many people have, like his con that he's been doing his entire life that he thinks the rules don't apply to him. Whether it's the AG in New York, whether it's Mar-a-Lago, whether it's the Georgia case, like this is a man who doesn't think rules have to apply to him. And it's all part of the same narrative, but we tend to talk about it very bifurcated. We go on TV and talk about Mar-a-Lago. We go on TV and talk about, you know, um, the New York AG, but like this is all part of a pattern and it's so much bigger than Trump. Obviously, we all know that. Right. Um, and we're gonna have a bunch of election deniers win in 12 days, and that is the really scary part about where we are. Well, you just got into election denial. I wanna play something for both of you because um, there's obviously talk about Director Ray from the FBI, and some of the lack of action, let's say, with respect to investigations on January 6th. I wanna get both of your reactions on something that I was telling you guys both off air, Andrew Weissman, the former FBI general counsel said. So let's take a listen to this. Miguel, hit that for us. And I hate to put more work on Merrick Garland and Lisa Monica's plate, but you know the FBI is a part of the Department of Justice. Many people don't realize that, but it, they report directly into the deputy attorney general and the attorney general. And Chris Ray had a very different response to the Black Lives Matter 
protests over the summer where they were all over it. The deputy attorney, the deputy director, excuse me, of the FBI said this was the most significant domestic terrorism event facing the Bureau. That was the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, and yet, when January 6th happened, the FBI really was asleep at the switch. And it wasn't an intelligence failure. It was a failure to act. So a lot there to process, but holistically for both of you guys, because there's been this whataboutism with what happened with Black Lives Matter protests. I thought it would be pretty easy for people to understand protests versus an election that wasn't stolen. But I don't even know what to say about that. But I want to get into what he said specifically from both of you. Mm -hmm. Director Ray's inaction in terms of what happened on January 6th versus Black Lives Matter protests. Pete, if you're still working at the Bureau, you're hearing some of that from somebody else who worked at the Bureau on air. What would be some of your reactions? Chris Ray came into the FBI after Jim Comey, and Jim Comey's personality as compared to Bob Mueller's were polar opposites. The integrity level, I think, with all three are the same, but I feel like Chris Ray's personality is somewhere in the middle between Mueller and Comey, and probably more on the Mueller side, wherein not very public, doesn't speak a lot, very measured, whereas Comey would talk to anybody everywhere every time, and that was just his personality. I think he's tried to let the work of the FBI speak for itself, but the downside is that there's not a lot of people out there defending the FBI or talking about things that need to be talked about, and he's got that pulpit. He's got that ability to do that. I do think that um, January 6th was an intelligence failure, whether it was a, a failure to envision that this could actually happen, you know, that people would actually go from the left side of the barricade where you're doing this and exercising your First Amendment rights to the other side of the barricade where you're going like this. I don't know if it was a lack of creativity in terms of thinking, but certainly there was a failure there. And I do think Chris Ray had a, had a real difficult time stepping up after that um, and really speaking about that publicly. And that's been a problem. And look, I mean, the challenge is the more we get from the Secret Service text messages and others, like people should have known what was coming because it was all over there. When we talk about the CIA, one of the biggest challenges they're facing are, number one, that these platforms and the places that particularly domestic extremists congregate and talk, like our intel folks don't really know all of them. I mean, they know them and they're getting to know them better, but you know, they've moved to new platforms that were, you know, the lights were, were flashing red. So they should have known. And they did know, and I don't know why they didn't do more. I mean, second, that the biggest threat we're facing in this country is from domestic terrorism. You know, I joined the CIA because I wanted to go after Al-Qaeda and bin Laden and the people that attacked us on 9-11. It is so hard for our security apparatus to sort of move the big aircraft carrier of focus um, to, away from, you know, Islamic terrorism, you know, extremism overseas to actually like the calls coming from inside the house. And I think the FBI, you know, it's hard because there are these, you know, we saw DOD go through this earlier this year when they were talking about military members who have extremist ties. They tried to walk this line. It's the behavior, it's not the allegiance. You can join an extremist group but not do something. I mean, this, we don't know how to tackle this threat because I think the FBI particularly and DOD and others are nervous about, because it's American citizens and this feels like speech, often it is, but often it's not. And so that, to me, is this huge challenge. Like, January 6th wasn't the end. It was the beginning 
or not the beginning, Charlottesville. Yeah, there were other things further in the past. But, you know, I think that, um, and that's, that's hard, I think, across the intelligence community. I think across law enforcement, we haven't cracked that nut yet. Yeah, actually, I want to sort of press you both on that because you just hit on something that's crucial. When we think about international terrorism, even if it's just talk, you know, even if previously bin Laden had just put out a video, right, that in and of itself looked like a threat. When we see now organizations like the Proud Boys and these other types of groups saying stuff that speaks, again, to threatening our democracy, you're hitting on the fact that the reaction's a little bit different because they're American citizens. Right. Is our j j overall challenge from an intelligence standpoint and a law, a law enforcement standpoint, both federally and locally, the fact that we're not quite jiving with the fact that domestic terrorism equates to the same level of harm and damage as international terrorism, but that talks about we're getting into an element of white supremacy, we're talking yeah. about like really endemic issues in the country that we have to be square with. I, I think that's right, and not just as deadly. I mean, domestic terrorism is far more deadly inside the United States than any terrorism that's come from overseas since 9-11. I mean, just look at the numbers, run them, there's no comparison. I mean, sure, I think that they, yes, there is, ner there is nervousness about American citizens and speech. You know, in the best uh, case scenario, it's nervousness about civil liberties and American citizens. I will remind people that propagandists for Al-Qaeda or ISIS were considered legitimate targets uh, globally fighting terrorism, some of whom were taken off the battlefield in kinetic action. So I'm not advocating for that in the United States. I'm just reminding people how we talk about these things. I'm not saying I agreed with it then. I'm just pointing that out. Um, but at it, the, the worst case scenario is that within law enforcement, there are people who agree or who sympathize with these groups and turn a blind and I'm not saying that's the case but that is a scenario we have to consider that in some places particularly with local law enforcement that there are people who sympathize with the Proud Boys there were members of the military and law enforcement on January 6th at the Capitol right close to where we're sitting today and that is a a societal problem that is much bigger than just figuring out the right tactics to go after these mostly guys. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, think of the word patriot and how political the word patriot has become in that term. And now we can't even come to a unified consensus of what that definition is. Um, hate speech is, it's disgusting, it's revolting, it's, it's repulsive, it's ignorant, and it's First Amendment protected. So if we sympathize with what happened on January 6th, if we're not calling it an insurrection, let's say we call it an incident or we call it a tour, you know, should that sympathizer work at the FBI, in the military, in local law enforcement, or are we okay with them having a First Amendment privilege and perspective on that, but do they do their jobs? When push comes to shove, are you going to go out and do an, an arrest on someone who has legitimate federal charges who violated the law allegedly on January 6th? That's where I think we have to draw the line, and it's, it's gray. Unfortunately, I think there's a gray area there where we start looking under the hood of the, the organizations that we work in, we might find a lot of stuff, and that's, that's something to be careful. I, I know you wanted to no, say something. No, no, no because I know you've been critical. You said um, when you came on with us, 
Hey, I'm critical of the FBI when it needs to be right. critical. No, you wanted to add something onto that. No, I was, just, I was actually going to ask you where you come down on that line, because it's a really tough question, yeah. right? How now when you get a security clearance, they look at some of your social media postings. Like, yep. I, I, this is a really hard question. And I was actually going to ask where you thought the line should be drawn. So I go back to January 6th, and, um, you know, the rally at the Capitol was literally the stop to steal. The election had been over. Most Republicans, mainstream Republicans, said Joe Biden is the elected president. There was about to be a constitutional process. So under the First Amendment, people were at that rally doing this, exercising their First Amendment privilege, whether the majority of folks agree or disagree. There were barricades. And once you cross those barricades, that to me becomes the physical and theoretical dividing line because then you're no longer exercising your First Amendment privilege. You're now actively working towards stopping this you know, constitutional event. So the barricade becomes symbolic, physically, and, and almost uh, you know, hypothetically, if you will. You can do this, think all you want, and you go back to your job and you know, having a clearance the next day, you know, unless you want to resign from the government, resign from your position where you require a clearance, um, the barricades is what's the dividing line for me. Yeah. Well, listen, before we both let, uh, let you both go, um, these people here, Nick alluded to it earlier, none of them work in government. Some are reporters that cover some of you guys. Give people optimism here that, <laughs> Marie, try not to laugh. Did you, did you someone give me a shot of something No, we, get, we gave all the, no, 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 I'm just kidding. We, we gave I'll all, be the optimist. We, we yeah, he's going to go first. I'm we, making him go we first. Gave the, we <laughs> gave the, the negative and we played a clip of somebody advocating for the Bureau being disbanded, right? Like, um, give the people in this room optimism as to why they should trust government or at least public office. I asked you that when you came on our show once upon a time. Can, I asked can, you, you, remi now. can you remind me of my answer? <laughs> I can I phone a friend? I I'm making him go first. Pete, why do we trust the FBI? I, I can't tell you how important that oath is that we took. Day one, the oath of the allegiance to the Constitution, not to a party, not to the person we voted for. There are so many people working in government uh, that, that, that believe in that oath and live it every day. I have friends that are still working at the Bureau. I can't tell you they're having a joyous time and enjoying their job, but they're doing their job. They're staying on their job. They're not resigning. They continue to uphold the Constitution and protect the American people and put themselves in harm's way, maybe not from physical harm, but from public scrutiny and from being doxxed and from being, you know, having arrows thrown at them from certain side of things. And I think that's what message I would want the American people to hear, is that there's still good people really doing a hard job, doing the best they can. And, and I think we should feel safe at night, to be honest with you. That's great to hear. And Marie's going to abstain from an answer. Because no, we, I'm no. not. I'm going to give you an answer. I don't, okay. I'm not going to do that. Um, I also think we should feel safe at night. I think that when it comes to security particularly, um, particularly national security, which is what I've spent my career on, I think that the, 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 the agencies are holding, right? I think that they are doing their job against particularly foreign enemies. I'm much more concerned about the domestic situation. But look, I'm optimistic because I have to be. We have no other option here, right? There's not like a different government waiting in the wings for us to call up when this doesn't work. It has to work. And as of today, 11 million Americans have already voted in this midterm election. We are on pace to out 
uh, outvote, to get more people to vote than we did in the 2018 midterms. We're, we're in some places, we're on pace for the 2020 presidential. Right? And so we have no other option but to fix this. And it's going to be messy, and it's going to be complicated, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, especially depending on the next presidential election. But I'm optimistic because we have to be. There's no other, you know, there's this great scene in Zero Dark Thirty, for those of you who've seen that movie, where he comes into the conference room and he says, there's no other team out there looking for bin Laden. You think there's these other people out there, it's just you. He uses a few expletives and I'm not going to do up here. Appreciate He's that. like, it's just you. That's it. So you have to do it because no one else is going to. And for me, that's why I'm optimistic because we have to be. And we leave it there. Our thank yous to Marie Harf, a former CIA officer. You can give them a hand. CIA officer, Fox News contributor, PLAP, former FBI special agent. When we come back, our panel, our roundtable of journalists from the Washington Post, NPR, and Reuters right after the break. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Nick, today's sponsor of the podcast is 800 Florals. Nick, when was the last time you bought your, your wife, your beautiful wife, Laura? When was the last time you bought her flowers? No, it's not recent enough, man. Oh, see, there we go. Why, why, and how come? Let's, let's get into that. Forget the copy for a second. How come? <laughs> I mean, I buy all kinds of different gifts. Um, so flowers sometimes slips my mind. Uh, you know, we do have a rose bush in the back. So I'm like, you know, we got some pretty flowers coming in, but I don't make that intentional pursuit of it, though. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm looking to you for ideas, though, of okay. where to go get them. Well, I have one. And folks, you should not copy Nick Silvera. You should be getting flowers for that special somebody that you love. And let me tell you a little bit about 800 Florals. There are roughly 20,000 professional florists in North America that design and deliver fresh flowers on a daily basis. 1-800-Florals is one of those. They've been around for more than 20 years. You can shop products, occasions, check out flower delivery. You can even arrange a thoughtful gift of monthly flowers for that special someone. You heard that, Nick? So you can set on auto subscribe here and get monthly flowers delivered to Laura's job. And you'll be thought of highly over there now. Uh, all you got to do is head to our show notes page right now to find out more about 800 florals. There's a link in our show notes page. It'll take you right to them. Use that link and you're going to get a special discount when you check out and buy those fresh flowers. Check out 800florals.com today. Joining us here, she's a national politics reporter at the Washington Post. And you know what? I like my sister, but I wish she was kind of my sister too. My sister's not gonna like that, but Sabrina Rodriguez, <laughs> make some noise. Yeah, we have sibling unity, yeah. You can catch Sabrina always on CNN as you see her here. She doesn't even see the photo when she's on Inside Politics with John King. Uh, also joining us, she's a fantastic NPR politics reporter. She's been on the podcast before. Jimena Bustillo, make some noise for Jimena. And last but not least, he's our favorite when we need to learn about what's happening overseas, because it's important. He's a foreign policy correspondent over at Reuters. Give some noise for Idris Ali. Make some noise. Thank you to all three of you for being on the show. Uh, first, I just mentioned where you all work at, but let's tell the people a little bit about yourselves and what made you want to get into journalism and writing. You've been at Politico. You've been at it for a while now. You just recently got 
a promotion at the Washington Post. Congratulations there. So tell us a little bit about why you got into journalism. Well, I will lead with, and I always lead with, I'm born and raised in Miami, so grew up there. Um, but, but I always knew I wanted to be a journalist, which kind of sometimes comes off a little corny. Like, I remember in elementary school knowing that I wanted to do this, and then was lucky enough that in my schools growing up, middle school, high school, they had like a school newspaper, got to take those opportunities. Um, but, but I think for me, the big thing was I definitely didn't know I wanted to do politics. <laughs> like for me, I was like, yeah, I would love to work at the Miami Herald and cover like local news, which I guess in Miami oftentimes does end up being oh, politics. You no, know, I live <laughs> but, there. <so. laughs> but but I, I didn't think, I didn't envision that for myself for sure. And it wasn't until I was in college and a professor suggested I do a program at Politico um, where I would spend 10 days in D.C. and kind of get a taste for political reporting that I came here, did that, and was like, oh, I love this. Like, I love, like, the cheese of it all and, like, the getting to, you know... You gotta, tell, you gotta tell the white people what cheese <laughs> means. So you can't, you can't That's just the, let the that Spanish, The Spanish for gossip. Yeah, um, I love some good <laughs> gossip um, in my social life and professionally. So getting to be a political reporter was a great way of, of getting to formalize that and make that a whole career. Um, but, yeah, so it's been great, and I've gotten to focus a lot on Latino voters, other voters of color, which is a kind of passion of mine, like specific interests outside of work. So getting to do it for work is great. Amen. what about you? Yeah, so I grew up in Idaho, so not in the Midwest. It's further than that. I'm already just telling <laughs> we're you. At, we're adding another segment about Idaho. <laughs> already a geography <laughs> class, I tell you. Um, I went to Boise State, which is not a journalism school, but I got involved in the student paper. And I didn't always know that I wanted to be a journalist. I thought maybe I'd go the politics route or the political science law school, grad school route at some point. Um, but also similarly, I did that same Politico program and that really solidified that I wanted to go into journalism. I love storytelling, I love talking to people. Like once I started writing stories, I basically couldn't stop. Yeah. Idris, what about you, buddy? So I, I, I grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, um, and I actually went to um, college for business in Canada and very quickly realized I was just not good at business and I needed to, to essentially find a new career. So right after um, my undergrad, I went to Maryland for grad school in journalism. And you know, I was like, oh, I'm not terrible at this. Um, and my family basically is, is a bunch of journalists, my grandfather, father, mother, oh, sister. So they, you know, they were like, don't become a journalist. So that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to shy away from it. Um, for each of you, I know where your crazy story is going to be because we covered it on the show when you were on, but what's a crazy story that has happened so far for each of you as journalists or something that you've had to cover that's been wild? You've been covering some nonsensical things that have been said by family members of ours. <laughs> we're not going to get into that here. Jimena, you've been covering a lot. You were just uh, covering President Biden's uh, conference there, and then you just went on NPR recently uh, on the uh, Up First, right, podcast? Yeah, yeah, morning edition this morning. Morning edition, right, where you were talking about the baby formula shortage. Give us a crazy story, each of you, in your respective careers in journalism so far. Something that's been a little bit crazy uh, with respect to what you've been covering, or maybe something incident-wise that happened, and we're going to get to a juice story in a bit. Yeah, so uh, I guess a part of my background is I spent two years working at Politico as an agriculture policy reporter. So where your food comes from, how it's made, um, all very political, um, believe it or not. And I started in 2020, which was 
right at the height of the pandemic where everything was shutting down, supply chains were crashing. And that's how I really learned the beat was by learning how things were not working. And I think one of the craziest days was when JBS, which is one of the four meatpacking plants that control almost all of meatpacking products in the United States, was hacked by Russia. Um, one specific plant was, and it went down, and we kind of sat on it for a bit, like how seriously do we take this? Do we write something up? Do we not? And then it blew up, and suddenly I was like trying to figure out how cybersecurity worked, and meat, and cows, and I like never thought those two would relate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still don't know how it relates. I, how do, wait, so all their systems and stuff like that yes. and the way the plant would process it. Yeah, okay. and so then it got shut down so they couldn't process meat. And the problem with the concentration is a lot of cows got processed at this very specific plant. And when that was down, it delayed the process at a point where processing was already delayed from the pandemic. Right. So it just created a giant backlog. What about you, Sabrina? I was gonna, I immediately, what came to my mind was like crazy political rallies I've been at or like people yelling things to me as like a member of the media, but actually this is gonna come down as like the craziest story for me. Also at Politico, I covered trade policy for a long time and I focused, I was doing it under the Trump administration when he was doing the renegotiation of NAFTA, which now USMCA, um, and, and this really is gonna speak to like the stat, like the state of politics in the United States, why I think this is crazy. But in those negotiations, it was a big question like, okay, are they going to be able to pass it in Congress? Are they going to be able to reach a deal that will have Democrats supporting it? Is it going to be a deal that, you know, historically big free trade Republicans are going to support? And, and again, we could unpack like trade policy for days. But in the end, they ended up passing it with like, overwhelming support from Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> like I remember the vote in the Senate was something like 92 to like six and two people didn't vote. Don't quote me on <laughs> the exact Cruz. number. <laughs> and then the same thing in the House where it was like an overwhelming majority. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this is never gonna happen again. <laughs> like, what bill is gonna get this much support? Right. Um, but yeah. Idris. Why don't you tell the people that story that you told us so eloquently on air about what happened with you on a flight with the Department of Defense? Yeah, so I, I um, covered the Pentagon, which means I you know, fly with either the Defense Secretary or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. In this case, it was the Deputy Defense Secretary, and we were flying to Norway. At this point, I'd probably traveled with them about you know, maybe 50 times or so. Um, anyway, long story short, because it is a long story, but. Um, I was on the plane, you know, U.S. government plane, and um, the pilots came up to me when we were in mid-flight, and they said, you know, you can't use your phone. We have a new rule, Air Force rule, saying the foreigners can no longer carry their phones with them. You know, I was not happy, so I put my phone in the seat back pocket. Um, a bit later, they had armed security on the plane. They came over and said, you know, not only can you not have it, we have to take your phone away from you. Um, this is all happening on the plane. Anyway, um, long story short, the, the rule had just been implemented, um, and there is only one non-American reporter. Uh, Pray who tell, who was that? Yeah, <laughs> so um, it was one of those incidents where it was like, you know, highly questionable. Anyway, we landed, a lot of mo noise was made about it, and, and they, re you know, retracted um, that rule. But yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, if you don't know the story, check it out. Uh, Idris Ali and all of your colleagues came to your defense yeah. right away, which was yeah. pretty cool for yeah, you to absolutely. find out. Go ahead, Nick. A couple of things about the show. 
just inside stuff for you all. So first off, him and I are food nerds. Agriculture reporting, I totally nerd out about it. We had talked once, um, you, you would share something at the end of an episode about, about that. And I remember Mike and I were texting about food. He's like, we can't talk about food. No one cares about food. I'm already asleep. At the very end, she starts to talk about this upcoming event going on. She's like, oh, I wish I could have a chance to speak on it. And I just, I just mean mug Mike the whole time, like, scoreboard. Yeah, just, I mean, scoreboard. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we had her do the segment with agriculture. <laughs> Look at just running back like a defensive yeah. back. Is there a question here, There Mrs. is a question. There yes, is indeed a question. Thank you. To the three of you, right now, obviously... Now, I spend a lot of time in like the world of print journalism. You know, I nerd out about that often. Where do you all see currently, you know, we played a clip earlier of the former president talking about, you know, government officials. But that same president's also been very critical of the media. You know, we've heard terms like fake news and all kinds of ways of demonizing the work that you've all done and many of your colleagues have done. Where do you assess the state of journal American journalism as of today? Idris, why don't you take that first? Because American journalism, as somebody born outside, yeah, I mean, um, you know, you almost have to like have different silos for different types, electronic, print. Um, I have never been very fond of electronic uh, or TV um, journalism, not because it's bad. It just has to be short and everything's boiled down. Um, Me too. Yeah, so um, I am not as uh, optimistic about that because I, I feel like things are just so simplified, it sort of misses the nuances. Um, on really important issues, in particular national security and foreign policy. More optimistic about print journalism because I think so many things that we saw during the Trump administration, which are still coming out, are investigative journalists bringing them out. And you know, I, you know what we're seeing sort of on the January 6th commission, a lot of it is them bringing out stuff that was reported on at the time, so yeah. Mena, what about you? Yeah, I mean, that's always really tough because I like I am in a very fortunate position where I can do radio and broadcast and I can also do print, but like I literally turned in a 2000 word story on baby formula yesterday and my editor was like, "We can't. No one's going to read this." And I'm like, "But they should." And he's right. like, "No, they won't though." And so that's that's like really tough is you're you're competing not just with everyone else, you know, to get the story out, but with people's attention spans as well, which leads to a lot of other problems like how do you promote your news stories, how do different editors promote news stories. And you know, before we started taping, we were talking about just local news and the state of local news. You know, I started in local news at the Idaho Statesman. That was one of my first jobs and I did local TV news as well, like on the production side. And I mean it it's really tough. Like the wages are really low, the um, in, the income for, for reporters are really low for producers, but Sometimes people don't always subscribe to that. They don't always read that. And in a lot of places, subscription is still what's driving a lot of the revenue, not ad sales anymore. So it's kind of really tough to look at that. Sabrina, what about you? Because you wrote a fantastic piece that we had you on a while back, that one in Political, where you were covering the border. And obviously, some of the political theater around it, specifically from one side of the political aisle. Your thoughts on the current state of journalism, like Dick mentioned? I mean, I think one of my biggest frustrations is is the fact that there are so many amazing journalists doing amazing work, and what gets prioritized is sometimes a little out of our control. So, for example, at, at 
at a publication I worked at in the past, it doesn't really matter the name, it's I, when I worked at Politico, but when I work at the Post, it doesn't matter, it's not a criticism of any of the places, I'm just thinking of like specifically when we worked at Politico together, where there's a huge focus on the political story of the day, there's a huge, store, a huge focus on, okay, what did Biden say today, what did he do, um, oh, what did Trump say, what did Trump do, and there's hundreds of reporters there that are covering policy and are covering baby formula, and if baby formula is not the top headline of the day, that does not mean that there's not 10 people that are paying attention to it and that are following it and are covering it. And I think that's something that, especially with like Twitter brain and like seeing like social media, people will be like, nobody's paying attention to this issue. And then they're linking to a story that someone wrote about that issue. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten, this network's not covering it. And then I send them a screenshot of the network covering it. Oh, well, I've never seen that. It's well, like, well, because it's 24 hours a day. You don't watch it 24 yeah, hours a day. And, and I do understand. I mean, the frustration is that it's not getting enough attention, that something is getting more attention than that. Um, but that's sometimes, like, that's out of the control of a lot of us right. as reporters. Like, we would love to prioritize. I want my story to be at the top of the page every day, if right. that were up to me. Right, right, right. Oh, very vain of you. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but let's move into, uh, let's get your expertise, each of you, on what's playing out now in American politics. The midterm elections are coming up. Go vote. You know it's important, everybody. Whatever state, early voting is already underway. You heard Marie in the last segment mention 11 million people have already early voted. There's a bunch of key races happening. All 435 House seats are up. There's 36 governor races. You know about the Florida one with DeSantis and Chris. Nick's in Pennsylvania, a lot of key races in the Senate. There's been a lot of debates happening as well, a bunch uh, across all the states with these candidates. Let's play a little bit of some of these debates and you can see right off the montage what side the Democrats are harping on issues-wise, what side the Republicans are harping on issue-wise. Let's take a look at this clip. J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. You have video posts. Don't even try to deny it. We got, we got, your, we got your Twitter posts and everything else. Everybody's seen it. The senator called the overturning of Roe versus Wade a victory. He celebrated the Dobbs decision, and he said that if women don't like the laws of their state, like the 1849 criminal abortion ban we have here, he said they can move. The most extreme position here would be no limits on abortion whatsoever, allowing abortion right up to the moment of birth, which is what the lieutenant government, governor supports. The thing the media and Congress and Ryan, they talk about this all the time, the thing they never mentioned is that poor girl was raped by an illegal alien, somebody that should have never been in this state in the first place. Imagine someone decides, oh, there's a drop box. I'm just going to put some explosive in it and blow it up and burn all of those ballots, and now those votes don't count at all. Look, and, and I'm really disappointed in you, Marco Rubio, because I, don't, I think there was a time when you did not lie in order to win. I've never pretended to be a police officer. <laughs> and and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to we that. Are, we are, we are no, moving no, 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 on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am worked with many police officers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you put that. I mean, it's a funny clip. There's a lot more that's happening in these debates out there. You can, you can see already the focus, though, issues-wise, right? Abortion, immigration, you're making a face. We're, we're both children of immigrants. So let's get each of your takes on some of the issues that Democrats and Republicans are harping on. We see it there in the messaging. What are some of your takeaways right now, the way these debates have gone across states? Yeah, I mean, so... 
some of these debates turn into a whole conversation about things that are not the issues to the point of like right. bringing out the badge and, and turning into that and and in Pennsylvania for example it's become a conversation about if if you know Fetterman is is fit to, to be in office because of auditory processing issues having after his stroke so some I see that in these races a lot of it has turned into conversations that are not about politics or policy anymore and it's more about like let's do a sideshow of all these other things which I mean that's up for debate what if those are issues that are important as well and stuff but it's definitely not always focused on policy however when you talk to voters and you're getting a sense of what are the top issues on their mind overwhelmingly it is the economy um, overwhelmingly there's a perception that that the economy is doing poorly that people are struggling that you know prices have gone up um, the conversation around gas prices and again people have different explanations for why that is happening um, it's not like a oh if gas prices went up then automatically you think it's Democrats fault I mean that just varies depending on who you're talking to and where you are geographically but um, that's the big one but but Democrats for example have really focused in this election on the issue of abortion um, and have seen that in the in the moment of you know in the months coming since the Supreme Court decided to overturn overturn Roe v. Wade that they have seen that that really energized voters, that they're really energized women, and they think that that is kind of a winning argument looking at the election. But then on the Republican side, they do not want to talk as much about abortion, and they want to focus on crime and immigration, and really stoking these fears of, okay, crime is up, the border's out of control, migrants are coming. I mean, when you look at like Republican ads that I've spent countless hours following, um, that is just overwhelmingly what we're hearing. Yeah. What about you, Jimena? Yeah, no, very, I mean, I think Sabrina just kind of gave you your, your answer, <laughs> is the, the economy and inflation is the top concern for voters right now. Um, that is the top, one of the top messages coming out of the Republican Party, whereas Democrats are by and large focusing on abortion and also on democracy and kind of like this whole idea of democracy being at an immediate threat right now, um, you know, whether or not in different races, you know, that's coming up more or less. Um, but it, voters, at the end of the day, do really care about how much they're paying for their food, how much they're paying for their gas. And that is a more upfront, immediate situation for them right now. Idris, you know, a lot of the times foreign policy, I remember doing some focus group research with folks in FIU at Miami. Uh, we did something with some voters in Illinois. And when you ask people about foreign issues, what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, they don't seem to care. However, House Republicans have made it a point to say this Ukraine aid will stop. Where do you see, not only in the debate stuff, but like foreign policy issues are ranking really low because there's not anything that's happening right now besides Russia invading their neighbor, um, anything happening that they think is top of mind that will sway them to vote in one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the U.S. has also sort of crossed the post-9-11 era where they were engaged in actual foreign wars. There are obviously troops abroad, Afghanistan is done, the U.S. engagement, uh, there are only a couple thousand troops in Iraq and Syria. So from that perspective, they're actually, the U.S. engagement is limited. Um, what always is interesting, and I know this happens every election cycle, foreign policy just doesn't play, but I think most Americans don't realize how much money is actually going to Ukraine, um, how much of their money is going to Ukraine. We're talking, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Um, so it always fascinates me where, you know, the economy is obviously a big issue, money, but then when you talk about these massive spending bills, um, when it comes to, to, you know, Russia, Ukraine, not much attention is paid. With that being said, you brought up sort of uh, McCarthy bringing up the fact that there would be more oversight into the money being sent. 
He since sort of stepped back because McConnell came out and said, you know, we're going to continue funding. So it's one of those actually weirdly rare areas where the Biden administration has done well and the Republicans aren't totally opposed to the money going. So uh, to, to your point, it's not high on the agenda, but it's also one of those weird areas where everyone seems to agree on Russia-Ukraine. Idris, to, fo to follow that, if a scenario played out where Republicans were to get back control of Congress, and let's say funding for Ukraine is greatly diminished, from what you've seen in your reporting, what potentially is the impact to, to Ukraine and, the, and its war efforts fighting off the invasion, just from like the U.S. not funding as much? Yeah, I think they would, uh, they being the Ukrainians, would be overtaken in a matter of months uh, if, if U.S. funding went down significantly or ended because the bulk of the money is coming from the United States. Uh, most of the weapons are coming from the United States. So if that were to diminish in any way, um, that would really, really have a big impact, especially because winter's coming and that's when most of the ground is going to sort of stay where it is, frozen. Um, and, and, and if, you know, they don't have cold weather gear coming in, some of the longer range weapons, that could have a huge impact for the Ukrainians. Sabrina, hey man, a question, something for you both to think about. It seemed like the, all those clips we played, now obviously I do a podcast with Mike, so I obviously know the names of all these people featured, but even for everyone in our audience, it seems this time, and this is an assumption I'm going to put out there, that we're more aware of national races in midterms than ever before, because typically turnout in midterms is not great, and there's a lot of factors for that, but it seems this time around that there's just a national focus on every race in this country. Obviously, we saw you were referencing Sabrina a moment ago about the recent um, debate between Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. And obviously, living in Pennsylvania, I'm you know, watching that with my wife. But even like Vance you know, in Ohio you know, against Tim Ryan. But where do you all stand on this from the coverage standpoint? Because like, you were talking before about not necessarily as reporters dictating like what we all consume. But it just seems from an outsider's perspective, we've paid far more attention and provide a lot more coverage this time around with the midterms. Is that a, just a false premise I'm putting out there or is that something you're all experiencing in your respective newsrooms? So I, if, I, if I can go first, um, I have two thoughts. The first is that, you know, we do have to recognize we're in a pretty dramatic bubble. And so we are aware, but I don't know that a lot of my friends or family back home in Idaho know who Herschel Walker is, for example. They know who Dr. Oz is because he's been famous for a really long time, so that might enter more. But in terms of like Carrie Lake or, you know, like some of these other candidates in other states, I don't necessarily know that there's as much attention into it. However, I will say that I think when it comes to the coverage, you know, particularly on my end, we are being asked to look at these national trends a lot more in terms of like drawing parallels between races in different states. And so that I think might be different than it has been done in the past. But in terms of just the general public generally knowing about what's happening in one state or another, I don't necessarily know that that's true. I mean, I'll be really honest, I haven't been covering the midterms almost this whole time until like maybe two weeks ago because I'm more of a policy reporter, not a politics reporter. And then I got told about a week ago I was going to go to Arizona for election day and I was like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> and I have to, I've been learning about what's happening in Arizona, but so far it's been, you know, a blind spot even for me and I'm I'm in this world and I had to write some some pre-writes ahead of election night and a lot of googling got done. <laughs> so it's it's the not, secret sauce googling. Yeah. Okay. So it's not 
I don't think it's as you know mainstream as we think it is. What about you, Sabrina, on next point? Yeah, I think there's a lot more attention, again, from, from the media, and I think nationally when we're talking about, you know, if you're in D.C. and you're a Democratic consultant, and maybe you only focused on governor's races in the past and didn't pay attention as much to the overall landscape, like, that has changed. And I think that changed in large part because of so many people being shocked in 2016 that Trump won. Um, I think a lot of people were not, a lot of media organizations, a lot of people in politics were just not prepared for it. They thought like, oh yeah, Clinton's going to win because the polls said. And I think that's where that stems from a little bit. But then it was like, okay, wait, like we have to be paying more attention to this. We have to be covering it. I think also the conversation around January 6th, the conversation about the state of democracy, I think people are more concerned about the stakes of the midterm elections because there are so many people running for office right now that are election deniers, that believe in overturning elections, that have not, you know, will not say if they will accept the results of elections. And I think there's even more attention to more races now. So it's not only that people are paying attention to, okay, all the Senate races. Senate races generally did get attention because, okay, the future of, you know, who has the majority and such. But for example, I feel like I've never paid attention, frankly, to Secretary of State elections. And now I know what's going on yeah. in some states because you're saying, oh, wait, if right. that person doesn't want to certify results, then like we have a whole problem. Right. Well, you fed perfectly into the segue, almost as if I sent this to you via email because. <laughs> Let's prep Jimena on Arizona, and we're going to play a little game with three journalists to cover or not to cover. You mentioned Kerry Lake. You mentioned election denial. We have somebody that's running for the highest land in a particular state that says things like this. Play the clip, Miguel. A lot of these individuals are seeking asylum. They are fleeing political violence in countries like Guatemala and Honduras. Do you accept that the U.S. has a responsibility to accept those asylum seekers? Well, the vast majority of the people coming across don't really meet the criteria for asylum. There's a lot of fraudulent asylum claims that are being made. We've had five million people come in, and we've had a million of them called gotaways. That means we're not even processing them. They want to avoid capture because they have criminal records. Well, DHS says that less than 1% of migrants encountered at the border have a criminal record. But I want to stick on, on the question of asylum, those that do meet the criteria, should they be allowed to stay in this country? Dana, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that figure you just put out. We have a million gotaways. These are people who are intentionally entering this country, mainly through the Tucson sector, and we don't know what their background is. Okay, so a lot there to process. Let's start with you first, because you are a former immigration reporter. Oh, how, how, how convenient. <laughs> Almost as if I invited you on for that particular reason. Um, I was recently on the Rick Sanchez News podcast. We were talking about Kerry Lake and giving actual statistics around fentanyl, how many migrants come into this country with fentanyl. Newsflash, it's less than 0.02%. These are according to the DEA and, and CBP statistics. Um, somebody like that is running for office. How hard is it to cover or not cover? Because you know a lot of the things she just said there are false. So how, how, do you, how do you cover somebody, even though they're running for governor of the state, when you know everything they're saying is blatantly a lie? Not my fact, not your fact, not even Carrie Lake's fact, an actual fact. I am triggered. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
I mean, it's a huge challenge for sure. And, and, and the reality is that the vast majority of Americans do not know what the actual statistics are. I mean, before I covered immigration, I didn't know what the statistics were. Um, those are, I think, informed by your opinion on the issue where you would listen to her and if you are sympathetic towards the issue of immigration or you, you know, you, that's something you follow closely, then you'd be like, there's no way that's true. But if you are someone that, that cares about immigration or lives in Arizona and is saying, like, there's too many migrants here, then you hear that and you say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the challenge, and, and I will not speak for broadcast and TV, I am one of the people, too, that kind of stands true to, like, print media is where it's at. Um, I mean, I think it is important to cover. She might win. This is not like a candidate that is, you know, a third party getting 2% of the vote. Like, she may very well become the next governor of Arizona, so we do need to cover her. Um, we do need to know what she's saying. We do need, especially if she's going to win a majority of the vote, because there are millions of people in the state of Arizona that agree with her and feel that way. Um, but I think that the important part of that is that if I'm going to write a quote from what she said there, then it's going to be followed up with statistics from, like, you know, U.S., you know, from the, the statistics from, from DHS say this. These are what the facts are. These are what, you know, that, that is something important. I think that we can't be writing about this as, like, oh, she said it, so it must be true. Like, there is that piece of accountability that I think is critical in journalism. Amanda, what about you? You're getting set to cover this woman and potentially if she wins. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, it's definitely a line where it's like she could win and she is a prominent enough figure that what she says does matter, but you do need to put it in context. I, you know, because I am more of a policy reporter and less of a politics reporter, sometimes I struggle with like, well, just because someone says something on TV, does that mean that it's news? And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes maybe we should just be writing a bigger story on immigration policy and including these caveats, you know, in there as well. So I think, I think it depends. Idris, what about you covering foreign officials and then U.S. officials? We saw what happened with John Kirby and the Pentagon when everything happened in Afghanistan. You wrote that article when you came on our show that a lot of people love that article in terms of the summary of Afghanistan and the withdrawal. What are some of your takes on to cover or not to cover and how to cover? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think the media learned one of the silver linings uh, for the press was how to cover, you know, non-facts when Trump came into office. And I think most of the media, when he started saying he was running, sort of took it as a joke. We covered it, but it was like, ha-ha. You know, there was never sort of this fact-based context that came afterwards. And I think over the past six years, we've learned how to cover people who don't always stick to facts. So I think that's one of the benefits. Um, a lot of the sort of um, Republican, you know, people who are running for office do mirror a lot of foreign officials who don't stick to facts or have their own facts, and so it, it definitely is reminiscent of that. And 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 you know, one of the, I, I totally agree. You have to cover these people because, you know, our job is to show the American people and who they're going to be voting for, and if they're crazy, we have to show that. If they're sane, we have to show that. So, um, I mean, you know, one of the easier tactics, I think, is to write up what they're saying with the context. As a wire, that becomes a bit tougher because we have to be very quick and we don't have a lot of space. We can go over 300 words in our stories. So, like, having people say something and then having the context becomes a bit tougher. But it's, I think, yeah, extremely important. Supri, you mentioned rightfully feeling triggered by that clip. Um, I think most of us were, 
because of how fallacious the statements were, uh, and, and racist, to be, if we're just going to be honest with ourselves for a moment. Um, but for the three of you, what roles do you, we just saw Dana Bash offer one piece of pushback of like, well, it's actually this percent. You know, very just matter-of-factly, but where do you all stand? Again, we've all talked about you're all not in necessarily the television space. I mean, you've all sometimes have done hits, but it's not where you reside in the work that you do as journalists. But what is the role of someone like of Dana Bash in that case where you're being confronted with just absolute just falsehoods? Do you, at that point, just stop the program and say, like, we need to have a conversation about this? Because most recently we've seen at least two examples from someone who's not a journalist in the form of John Stewart talking recently with a member of, an, of the Arizona, I forgot what. Uh, Arkansas. Was, thank you. Yep. Well, in Arkansas about abortion, about statistics about abortion, medical data, and confronting the attorney general of what you're saying is wrong here. And then most recently with Arizona about election data and a person who could not admit that Joe Biden had won the presidency legitimately. And this person was just kind of throwing facts and figures. But here's someone in that space saying like, what you're saying is incorrect. To someone like Dana Bash and to other people on television, what is the role of a reporter or journalist when confronting just repetitive falsehoods? I mean, I think the number one thing is going into an interview prepared. Um, I think for, for Dana Bash, for any reporter on TV and any reporter off TV, I mean, if I'm going to be interviewing someone, and period, actually, I'm not even going to say someone that has a history of lying or someone that, I'm, no, if you're going to interview anyone, you have to go into that interview prepared because I need to know that when you answered that question and you answered it falsely, that I can say back to you, but actually, these are what the DHS statistics say. But actually, this is what that looks like. If I don't have that knowledge, then that whole interview is going to be Carrie Lake saying what she thinks, her saying statistics that, are, that don't exist. I mean, and I just don't have, the, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the tools to be able to do my job. Um, so I think that's critical. I will say, though, as a journalist, like, it's hard, <laughs> even, and, and I am not on, I'm not like a anchor or anything like that having to do it, but I think it's a challenge, um, it's a challenge in interviews. When someone's giving you false numbers and stuff and I'm on a phone call with someone, it's like a, do I just let them continue? Do I interrupt them? Do I push back on that question? Do I just move on to the next question? I think we're all human and that's like a challenge that, that I think we all face. What about you, Jimena? Yeah, I mean, I think emphasizing the just like being as prepared as you can yourself. And if you know that you're going to be speaking to someone that might have a certain spin, you know, be aware of that. Everyone's going to have their biases, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're spreading misinformation, but they're going to come at, at whatever your question is with a certain angle. And even if it's just like intense Googling again, like I have definitely Googled facts and figures on a phone call because someone says it and I'm like, I want to check that. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's outdated data, and then I can be like, well, that is from 2005. Do you have anything more recent? You know, so that, you know, don't be afraid to, to push back. Adris, last point for you. No, I would just say, I mean, in this instance and in TV, I think part of the responsibility goes to the producer who is in the earpiece, who probably has Google or whatever at their fingertips. So I think a lot of responsibility should go on the producer who's not actually on TV. Well, listen, the state of journalism is in good hands because Reuters foreign policy correspondent Adris Ali's got you covered overseas. Jimena Ustillo over at NPR, Sabrina Rodriguez at the Washington Post. They've got you covered here on the domestic issues. Go follow all of them on social media. Check out their articles. Our thank yous to them. Give them a hand for being on the panel. When we come back, we'll sign off for our two-year anniversary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Anniversary show. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. This episode is presented by Fresh Roasted Coffee. Head to FreshRoastedCoffee.com. Use the promo code CANWEGET20 at checkout. You get 20% off your first purchase. Head to FreshRoastedCoffee.com today. All right. Our thank yous to our panel here, Marie Harf. You can check her out at Fox News. She's a contributor over there, former CIA officer, State Department spokesperson. Pete Lapp, FBI special agent in charge of espionage. His book's coming out, The Queen of Cuba. That'll be out later on this year. Thank you to our panel of journalists, Adris Ali. You can go check him out. Reuters, follow him on social media. The guy's got a lot of followers. Mm. Did you know that? Uh, he's got a lot. He's got like 60,000 Look at him. Why, yeah, why, who I, wouldn't yeah, follow him? Guy. He's a great guy. He's got a lot of followers. Uh, two lesser followers. Uh, Sabrina Rodriguez, Washington Post. What is the matter with you? Over at NPR. Well, why you would mean? you do that? It's just she's just, 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 just got up. followers. All right. Our two-year anniversary. We say goodbye to everybody. But here, right now, from City Tap House, our live location. <laughs> okay, come on down. Our server's bringing us a cake. I want everybody in the room, sing us a little happy birthday. Happy, even though that makes no sense. Day to you. <laughs> Two years ago, Nick. Happy yeah, birthday to... Is this... I can't get rid of you now. No, no we're in. Happy birthday, Oh my God, that's a legit dear. cake. Can Holy we fuck. please talk? Uh, happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Oh, you want the little one, all right? Ready? Thank Thank you, you everybody, for tuning in. And check out Can We Please Talk wherever you get your podcast video. Follow us on YouTube, Can We Please Talk Podcast, audio podcast platforms. You know them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Leave us a five-star review and comment, please. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. Shout out to our sponsor, Fresh Roasted Coffee, the best-tasting coffee out there. Use the promo code Can We Please Talk for 20% off. I'm not just saying that because they're paying us. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Please vote. Early voting's available now. If you're able to do so, make sure to check your state, check with great journalists on that availability. But none of this matters if you're not showing up on November 8th. I'm Nick Severi. Thank you. See everybody next time.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.